The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The AFD has, you know, done worse than it wanted to. It's done worse than last time. And because it has radicalized so so visibly, allying itself with neo-Nazi and identitarian groupings, it has become just beyond the pale for any democratic party to collaborate with. To me, as a German, I have to say, you know, the fact that 10.6% of German voters are still under those circumstances willing to vote for the AFD is hair-raising. And what I'm even more concerned by is the fact that it gets far a far greater vote share in Eastern Germany. And in fact, it rolled in in first place at around 21% in two of the five Eastern German states. And that to me is truly terrifying because that means that the established democratic parties, you know, just don't have an answer to the problems that make people vote for the AFD. That's really quite distressing. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, September 28th, 2021. Over the weekend, Germany held elections to see who will succeed Angela Merkel as Germany's chancellor. The results are in, but there's still a lot of coalition building to go. To break it all down, I sat down with Constanze Stelzenmüller, who's the Fritz Stern Chair on German and Transatlantic Relations and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and Yasha Monk, who's an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced and International Studies, both of whom are experts in German politics. We talked about the election, how to make sense of the results, and what everything means for the bigger picture of European politics, Germany's role in the world, and lots else. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 28th, an election in Germany. All right, so Constanza, if you could get us started here. So what were people in Germany voting on this weekend? They were voting on who would become chancellor, so the head of the German government in Germany after Angela Merkel stepping down at the end of her fourth tenure. Just give us a brief overview. We'll we'll walk through the details of it as we go on, but give us a brief overview of how things shook out. So Germany's politics used to be extremely simple. Before reunification in West Germany, we had two main parties and one small party, the center-right Christian Democrats and conservatives, to which Angela Merkel belongs, and then the center-left Social Democrats. And the small party, the liberal, kind of decided which party would ally itself with. And so, you know, over the first uh, nearly 50 years of West Germany's existence, you had either 
conservative liberal or social democrat liberal coalitions. And of course, in the in Eastern Germany, uh, which was not a democracy, you had you, you did have uh, several parties, but basically the Communist Party ruled and the other ones were just there for window dressing. Now, since then, things have really shifted. Germany has become much more diverse. We have a total of six parties. The Greens were created in 1980. They started as a sort of woolly, pacifist, uh, ecological party. And then there is the left party, which is the, as it were, the successor of East Germany's Communist Party. And finally, the alternative for Germany, which is a hard right party, created in 2013 and which came into the legislature for the first time last term around and came back in. So the question was, would Germany's politics become more extreme? Would these, would the hard left and the hard right get more uh, votes or would we essentially remain a centrist country? And what we've seen was that the two big parties, which used to get 40% of the vote, came in in almost a dead heat, but at, of course, a much smaller vote level. So uh, in the case of the Christian Democrats, 24.1, and in the case of the Social Democrats, 25.7. That's a long way away from the 40, 40 percentage points they used to get. And we're also probably looking at the first time that they have to form a three-way coalition with the Greens or the Liberals, because Die Linke didn't get back in, and the AFD is so hard right that nobody wants to work with it. So that's where we are right now. We're discussing what coalition to form, and it's probably going to be a traffic lights with the Social Democrats in the leadership and the Greens and the Liberals tagging along. Was that complicated and extensive enough for you and your listeners? <laughs> Appropriately so. And we'll we'll get back to some of that in a bit. But I'm curious first to open this up to both of you and maybe Constanza, you can go first. To what extent did, did what happened today surprise you? Was it consistent with what most people were expecting or is it divergent from what you were expecting? Well, I think interestingly enough, the election campaign was more surprising than the outcome because the election campaign was one of the most whiplash campaigns the country has ever seen. First, you know, the Greens were trending as the front runners for the first time in German history. That gave everybody just vertigo because that would have been a completely new political landscape. And they were trending really in the territory of, of yesterday's winners. So around 22%. And then they lost traction for reasons we could discuss. And then the Christian Democrats, Angela Merkel's parties, um, started surging. And in the end, the least likely party that people thought was practically already dead, the Social Democrats, who had been having a really hard time for years and, and for the past few months, never getting above 14% or so, suddenly soared up to the nearly 26 and and won the election. That was that was surprising. But you know, the fact that, that the left party sort of fell out of parliament because they didn't make the 5% threshold, the fact that the AFD got less, um, you know, all that is not that surprising. I think what's what's concerning to me is that, that the AFD gets really high numbers in the former states of Eastern Germany, but let's we can talk about that later as well. And Yasha, I'll open the same thing to you. Was this surprising to you in any way? Well, first of all, thank you, Constanze, for your tour de force of uh, talking listeners through some really boring material <laughs> in the least boring way possible. Um, uh, that's 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 a task I would not have uh, wanted to, to to do, and I would not have been able to do it with your elegance. Look, I think sort of as Constanze was saying, 
the outcome of the election was not very surprising compared to a week ago. You know, the polls turned out to be pretty much on point. And so nobody sort of looked at those projections late on Sunday night when the figures were stabilizing and thought, oh, my God, five hours earlier, I would have thought something completely different. They were pretty surprising compared to where we were a few months ago in the way that Constanza already outlined. I would add that they are also quite surprising relative to where we were uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. So for a long time, it seemed like there were these very stable catch-all parties. In the parlance of political science, it looked like party systems across many Western democracies were frozen, roughly the same characters, dominating the political landscape for decades on end. Um, Once one party has a bit more votes, once the other party has a bit more votes, there's some alternation in government, but the basic players are sort of well-known, and there's a couple of major ones. And then you started to see really the decline of the Social Democrats as a catch-all party, as what Germans call a Volkspartei, a party that has broad support in the people. And, you know, people prognosticated the the death of social democracy. And that happened in some European countries. Uh, At least for now, the French uh, sister party of the SPD, the Parti Socialiste, has become basically an irrelevance and was forced humiliatingly to sell off its former headquarters because it has so little support and so little money now. And it looked as though the SPD was was heading for the same thing. But, But one of the lessons from this election is that this is happening to all catch-all parties, that this was less a story in particular about social democracy, as it seemed to be 10 years ago. It's actually a story about all catch-all parties. And when you look around Europe today, Christian Democrats and conservatives are really in trouble as well. And the CDU yesterday, and this still would have been a surprise 10 years ago, had a historically bad performance. There's now... Um, no party left in Germany that can reliably get 25 or more percent of the vote. And, and that, I think, is a really fundamental transformation of the electoral system. Now, that has some good things because it means that parties can um, search when they have a strong candidate or have a good vision that seems to speak to that particular moment. And so actually it might inject a little bit more healthy competition in the overall electoral landscape, but it also has some bad things that are quite characteristic of many forms of proportional representation. And the most important for that is that it's really hard for voters to cast a ballot to change the government, because even if you're voting for an opposition party, that party might simply join the government in some kind of uh, slightly reconfigured coalition Uh, And suddenly your vote, which was meant to remove the chancellor, might help the chancellor stay in office. And of course, you get the situation that we now have in Germany where the election is over. Uh, We know exactly what the results are. There's no Donald Trump running around saying that the uh, outcome of the results of the election was fraudulent. And yet we don't yet with 100% certainty know who the chancellor is going to be because that's going to be figured out by a bunch of politicians in uh, backroom deals over the course of the next few months. So you can you have a lot of choice in which party you vote for, but you don't have much choice in what government that vote actually ends up supporting. And that problem, in a way that would have been surprising a few decades ago, is more acute now in Germany than it was in the past. And so I want to move to that coalition building. So, Constanza, could you talk a bit about where we're at in the coalition building process? So you mentioned a bit the two parties who are sort of 
in neck and neck in, in the voting. Talk a bit more about what those two parties are and what you see as the sort of off-roads for what coalition building might lead to. So because Germany is a parliamentary democracy and not, not a presidential democracy like America or France, coalitions have always been the way of life in German politics. It's just that the coalition leaders these days start from a much lower base, much lower vote share. And this time around, for the first time, they're going to have to, the, the leading party is, has to share power with not just one party, but two. In theory, three coalition models are possible, but one is politically extremely unlikely, and of the two remaining, one is swiftly drifting out of sight. Let me explain. Numerically, a repeat of the grand coalition that Merkel ran for three out of her her four terms is possible. In other words, a two-party coalition between the center-right Christian Democrats, her party, and the center-left Social Democrats, but since the center-left uh, Social Democrats got about just short of 2% more than the Christian Democrats, they would be in the lead. I think we can, at this point, practically issue a cast-iron guarantee that that's not going to happen, because that would be humiliating for the Christian Democrats, and because, uh, frankly, they can't stand each other's guts anymore. They, they want, as Yasha hinted, what, what they want and what Germany wants is a new kind of government that solves some of the or addresses some of the issues that Merkel's government has over time left undone, and which uh, at this point is, is becoming more and more urgent. And here, two, three ways are theoretically possible. For the winners of Social Democrats to head a so-called traffic light coalition with the Greens and the Liberals. The Liberals have the color yellow, the Social Democrats the color red, hence traffic light. The other alternative would be what, for the longest time in this campaign, the Liberals and the Greens thought they were heading for, which was what we call, amusingly for everybody else, Jamaica. Because the Jamaican flag is black, green, and yellow, and the color of the conservatives is black. All the parties are color-coded. But, and in fact, last night in the primetime live TV meeting of all the candidates and party leaders, uh, this is entertainingly called the elephant round uh, in, in the German political tradition, because, you know, you used to be, these all used to be older white men um, who I think were compared to elephant bulls, you know, sitting around waving their trunks, snorting and flapping their ears. And the Christian Democrat candidate in the elephant round last night said, of course, I, I may be just behind the Social Democrats, but of course, I claim the, the possibility of negotiating a coalition and I'm going to do this. That today looks a hell of a lot less likely. And mainly it's because of the candidates, Armin Laschet's poor performance in the election campaign, the many mistakes he made, the, the pervasive sense that he's really a lightweight who was well beyond his, his point of competence and the entrenched rivalries within the, the, the party's leadership between, it has to be said, about half a dozen elephant bulls who thought that they would have been the better chancellor candidate and sort of, and, and in fact thought so through all the 16 years of Angela Merkel's reign. So it is entirely possible that the Christian Democrats will self-implode and that the option of Jamaica will remove itself from the table, leaving the Greens and, and the Liberals with no other choice but to talk to the Social Democrats. Yeah, that's really useful. So I want to take a little bit of a step back. So one thing that particularly I see getting discussed a lot in English language media is the extent to which the election was or wasn't 
a referendum on, on Angela Merkel's tenure in office. Yasha, what would you say to that? What would you say to people who, who make a comment maybe that part of what was at stake here is a referendum on, on her success and her, her time in office? Well, I, I think it's hard to make the case that that was really what was going on because, you know, those three candidates, one of whom was from within Merkel's own party, and broadly speaking, from within the ideological wing of Merkel's own party, which is to say that he is sort of a moderate within the party. He's not one of the people who wanted to push the party back towards a more right-wing, more conservative policies. The second was the vice-chancellor in her own government, the head of the Social Democratic Party, but somebody who'd worked very closely with Merkel and who in many ways seemed to campaign as a sort of a Merkel lookalike, you know, very calm, not really pushing the policy agenda very actively, somebody who has sort of good judgment, but not a lot of sort of great rhetorical firepower or a lot of desire to sort of be an Obama-like transcendent figure. Uh, and then the third, I suppose, was the head of the Green Party who stood for most of a, of a contrast with Merkel, but who themselves actually would have probably liked to enter a coalition with uh, her party under the right circumstances, ideally with them as the senior partner and Merkel's conservatives as, as the junior partner, and who you know wasn't overly critical of Merkel's uh, legacy either. So I think you know there was actually a broad consensus within the main parties uh, that it's time to move on. Merkel was in power for sixteen years and. Uh, that's probably a good thing that Germany is going to have a new chancellor, but they were all, to varying extents, quite complementary of Merkel, or at least, you know, reluctant to criticize her too much. There's also a second dimension to this question, which is sort of the idea that some American readers and listeners have that, you know, really the thing that held Germany together for the last 16 years, the thing that explains why uh, German democracy hasn't come apart was Angela Merkel. And that, of course, raises the, the, the risk or the danger, the fear that Germany will Trumpify after Merkel, that once she has left the political stage, you know, this moment of moderation in Germany, the one democracy that still sort of works, will, will be over. And I think, uh, as Constanze said, the very clear emphasis on moderate political parties, the decline in the vote of a far-right alternative for Germany, the decline even in the vote for uh, the less dangerous, uh, but still not particularly appealing far left, uh, left party. All of that shows that German politics will remain pretty moderate after Merkel. I think this is a historic election because changing chancellor after 16 years has a historic feel to it. But it is not, I think, a historic election in the sense that uh, it will make a big difference either to German domestic policy or to German foreign policy. And there, by and large, I have to say, you know, there's certainly a need for real reforms within Germany. There's a need for some change in domestic policy. Uh, but I'm not too concerned about the fact that, broadly speaking, there will be a steady hand on German domestic policy, that the mix between capitalism and the welfare state is going to continue, that uh, all of the people who are going to be in power now um, are pretty socially liberal without being... Uh, extremist in, in any direction, uh, that they're fiscally responsible, but care about the welfare state. All of that is fine with me. I'm a little bit more concerned about the foreign policy end of it, because I think that actually 
on that front, Germany has really been asleep at the wheel for the last couple of decades in a way that, that concerns me. Uh, and, and, and there I would wish for a future chancellor to come in with more of a strategic vision, with more of a sense of how to have Germany not just talk nicely about human rights and democracy, but perhaps actually do something for human rights and democracy. And my hopes uh, for Olaf Scholz and for Armin Laschet, the two plausible candidates to succeed Angela Merkel at this point, are, are pretty limited on that front. Concerns. I'm, I'm wondering what you what you make of all that. Well, I I do have concerns. I mean, my my field is foreign and security policy, and I um, sort of undertook the fairly unenviable project of reading all the foreign policy chapters in the party programs, the election platforms of all the six parties concerned. And I do think that we end up with if we end up with the traffic light coalition in Germany, a Chancellor Olaf Scholz and his team will have some sort of real intellectual and practical challenges in foreign and security policy, and fairly soon. I mean, the the real challenges, of course, are, you know, an increasingly assertive Russia and China, not just in their own domains but and neighborhoods, but in our neighborhoods, and in fact, in our own countries, through hybrid forms of interference. The challenge is a transatlantic relationship, which the Biden administration has professed to renew, but where we are still seeing some fairly significant disagreements, such as on the the recent spat with France and Australia over submarine purchases or the um, withdrawal from Afghanistan. And finally, you know, there is the sort of foreign policy calendar of stuff like Germany heading presiding over the G7 from January 2022, the, in December, the COP26 uh, climate negotiations in Copenhagen and the you know French elections, presidential elections in the spring and then the American midterms. All those things will present immense challenges. And, and I would maybe add to the mix the fact that the Biden administration has to undertake a global force posture review and a nuclear posture review. Um, which could have considerable consequences for Europe. And if I look at the party programs of the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the Liberals, it seems to me that consciousness of the extent and the severity of the challenges is not reflected in those programs. So much depends on who becomes a national security advisor, who becomes foreign minister, and who becomes defense minister. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
And to what extent were those foreign policy issues salient at all during the campaign trial? Not was at all. It, was it something? <laughs> not, <laughs> not at all. all. That's what I would so have guessed. So yeah. we had a number of three-way nationally televised debates. And the three big ones didn't cover foreign policy at all, with uh, the exception of a 15-minute segment on the Afghan withdrawal. Um, and then there was a final so-called septel, because all parties, the, the just to make things complicated for, for you foreigners, the CDU is, uh, the Christian Democrats of Angela Merkel actually has a Bavarian sister party. So they count themselves as two, although they're really, you know, united and, and their votes are, are counted together. And so it was a septel. And there they actually tried to talk about foreign and security policy because viewers and the media had complained so much about the absence of these issues. But I'm not sure that that resolved any of my doubts, to be honest. So, so yeah, if I mean, people worry that we that that this election campaign and and maybe the sort of just overwhelming complexity and uh, number of challenges besetting us could make us inward looking. I would think they have they'd have some pretty good indications for that being a real issue. I very much agree with Constanza on these points. I'd like to add sort of two particular areas in which I worry about a lack of direction being quite dangerous, actually, for Germany and for the world if the country doesn't figure out its foreign policy. So the first is that over the tenure of Angela Merkel in office, we have seen the rise of authoritarian populists in member states of the European Union. Poland and Hungary in particular have rapidly careened away from democracy. At this point, uh, Hungary is no longer classified as a free country by Freedom House. Uh, and we're seeing other member states of the European Union potentially following suit. Uh, there's particular concerns, for example, about the Czech Republic and uh, some other countries within the EU. And this is a real problem, a real challenge for the core legitimacy of the European Union, because the bloc lives from the willingness of the citizens to share and pool the sovereignty with other European countries. But that is much more to ask if you're essentially asking them to pool sovereignty with a dictator in Budapest rather than a truly democratically elected government. Angela Merkel tolerated Fidesz, the party of the Hungarian leader, as part of the same political family in the European Parliament, as part of the same faction in the European Parliament. She indirectly opposed uh, real steps to sanction Orban for his attacks on democratic institutions. And as a result, the EU, I think, now has an existential crisis. And I don't see uh, any particular desire from either Olaf Scholz or Armin Laschet to deal with that existential crisis on those terms. And that, I think, will exact a, a big long-term price. And, and the second, which may be even more concerning, has to do with Europe's positioning between the United States on the one side and Russia and China on the other side. Over the last years, Germany has remained politically aligned with the United States. It is, of course, a member of various Western alliance structures, the most important of which being NATO. But at the same time, it has struck a lot of deals with autocrats around the world. And the German government is now essentially reliant on Recep Erdogan in Turkey if it doesn't want a lot of, a lot of refugees flooding into the country with uh, very difficult political consequences uh, for ruling parties, as we saw in 2015. 
Germany is essentially reliant on Vladimir Putin to keep the gas on for it to have uh, enough heat for pensioners to be able to get through the winter. And that reliance is probably going to get worse after the completion of Nord Stream 2. Uh, and the German economy is very reliant on uh, exports to China. And when you take those things together, I'm really concerned about Germany and eventually other countries in Europe or Europe as a whole, a sliding into a kind of quasi-neutrality between democratic countries like the United States and authoritarian countries like Turkey, Russia, and particularly China. It's the sort of, you know, creeping Switzerlandization of Europe. And again, I don't see the strategic vision uh, from uh, either Scholz or Laschet to take that seriously, make a strategic choice, and hopefully avert the Switzerlandization of Europe. And so one thing that, that both of you have touched on at different points is the, the relatively poor performance of extremist parties in, in this election. And, and Yasha, I'm curious, you mentioned right, there's an election in France coming up in eight or nine months. To what extent do you see the, the relatively poor performance of extremist parties here as something that's reflective of broader political trends in Europe, or, or is it, if it's something sort of unique to German political dynamics? Um, it's a little bit of both. So I have uh, argued in a piece in The Atlantic a couple of months ago that for the first time in a very long while, I'm starting to see uh, some potentially optimistic trends about the fate of populist governments around the world. And again, this is very early. Things may well continue to worsen over the next years. This is not the moment to stop sounding the alarm. But you know, if five or 10 years from now, there will be a positive story to be told, we're starting to see what it might look like. Um, so in the French regional elections a few months ago, uh, Marine Le Pen failed to win a single region, a majority in a single region. Um, so the ability of at least that part of the far right to actually win majorities continues to be limited. In Scandinavia, in the Netherlands, in a bunch of European countries, we're seeing that where populists haven't taken over a few years ago, they don't seem to be improving uh, their share of a vote, their standing now. So the danger that more and more countries might be taken over by populists um, seems less acute than it did a few years ago. And finally, we're seeing that populists in countries where they have ruled for a long time uh, are starting to be a little bit less popular, that People are figuring out that the promises were often empty, that the countries are not doing better than they were in the past, and populists in countries from Brazil to a few other places like Mexico are starting to pay the price for that. And there's just a possibility that perhaps Viktor Orban will lose power in upcoming parliamentary elections there in the spring. That depends on whether the opposition is able to break through uh, despite a very heavily biased media against them because there's barely free media left in Hungary. And it depends uh, on whether uh, Orban would actually give up power, which I think is not a foregone conclusion. But when you're looking at current polls, the opposition is doing pretty well. And there is just a chance that even within Europe, some of these defining populists are going to start being out of office. So when you look at Germany and you say, look, uh, the left party uh, nearly missed its chance to re-enter uh, the government, and most importantly, uh, the really very extreme alternative for Germany, uh, for the first time in its history, has declined in vote share 
and national elections is down by about two percentage points to between 10 to 11 percent, you know, and, and, and that looks like a pretty good sign. What I would add, though, is that Germany is a little bit of an outlier, that the extent to which uh, moderate parties dominate in the political uh, landscape, despite the you know, continuing worries about the AFD, which are important and, and well taken, is a bit of an outlier. And certainly in France, probably Macron's odds on to be re-elected as president of France, but it is far from unthinkable that Marine Le Pen will be the president of France. And at this point, uh, it, it is not even unthinkable that Eric Zemmour, uh, a far-right writer and uh, propagandist, uh, will be the next president of France. So yes, you could see Germany optimistically as part of a trend. It's a little too early to be sure about that. I hope that five or so years from now we'll be able to look back at this moment and say, yes, this is part of a trend, but there's certainly also things that, that make Germany uh, a little bit of an outlier. And for reasons that I don't entirely understand, the German political system just appears to be working significantly better than that of most peer countries and most democracies in the world at the moment. Yasha is quite right to say that the AFD has, you know, done worse than it wanted to. It's done worse than last time. And because it has radicalized so so visibly, allying itself with neo-Nazi and identitarian groupings, it has become just beyond the pale for any democratic party to collaborate with. To me, as a German, I have to say, you know, the fact that 10.6% of German voters are still, under those circumstances, willing to vote for the AFD is hair-raising. And what I'm even more concerned by is the fact that it gets far a far greater vote share in Eastern Germany. And in fact, it rolled in in first place at around 21% in two of the five Eastern German states. And that, to me, is truly terrifying, because that means that the established democratic parties, you know, just don't have an answer to the problems that make people vote for the AFD. That's really quite distressing. And we'll, we'll see how that plays out in the future. I do think, though, that we, we can consider ourselves lucky, as, as Yasha said, that our politics is still relatively centrist and moderate compared to others. We have, in, in a sense... I think, followed the trend in the rest of Europe in becoming more diverse and more volatile, but we haven't actually sort of feathered out to, to the extremist fringes, and I'm grateful for that. The fact that Die Linke, the extreme left party, didn't make it across the 5% threshold, I think really is a result of its, you know, just it, its policies that are a very pro-Russian, very out of sync with 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 people's concerns. It has only ever worked in areas where it's seen, you know, in Eastern Eastern Germany, really, where it was seen as the you know, legitimate successor to a legitimately East German party, the Communist Party, because uh, the other parties were seen as carpetbaggers. But but still, you know, it's I, I think the, the left party's time may actually be over. And I'm still concerned by the existence of the AFD. But in general, Germany's federalism and its sort of tendency towards moderation, the fact that we don't have the possibility to gerrymander 
electoral districts, the fact that we have very strict supervision and regulation of campaign contributions, and the fact that we have generally publicly respected public media, I think all means that, that there is a sort of much greater sort of common basis of consensus in German politics than in other countries where that's no longer the case. And just to wrap up, I'd be curious to hear from both of you what you think is sort of the big picture takeaway, the one thing that, that really stuck with you and, and you'd want to convey to listeners. Yasha, you first. I'm curious. I think, well, let me say a big takeaway that we haven't talked about, which is that the dog that we didn't bark in this election. You know, if one a narrative outside of Germany about this election was, oh my God, Merkel is leaving, is the country going to Trumpify? And I've explained why I think that's a wrong reading. A second narrative, a little bit more sophisticated, but I think no less wrong, is that this was going to be the election which shows that populism is sort of a side story and really what we're seeing and going to see in European politics is the rise of a younger generation, the rise of really strong support for environmentalist movements. The Green Party is going to become not just the dominant party of the left, but the dominant party in the country is going to win the chancellery uh, because Germans recognize that you know, the fight against climate change is the most important issue of the day, and that the way to fight against climate change is um, you know, essentially to admit that we've sinned against nature, to self-flagellate, to promise to cycle to work and you know, leave the air conditioning on uh, not too much in the summer, or actually ideally not have air conditioning at all uh, in Germany, you know, to, to be a little uncomfortably cold in the winter, to give up on the idea of flying into your holidays and so on and so forth. And I think the fact that the Green Party was uh, so hyped and ended up, you know, not just a third, but a distant third, really bunched in with the Liberal Party and, and sort of even the AFD rather than the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats uh, was a big surprise. The fact that among people who voted for the very first time in Germany, it was the sort of center-right pro-business Liberal Party that uh, edged out the Greens and had uh, the most votes. And that actually, even among voters below the age of 30, the left was not much stronger than the right uh, when you look at the overall vote count. All of that shows that uh, those hopes were slightly overstated um, and that actually we're not going to have a radical shift in, in, in at least that form of environmentalism uh, in the near future. Other German political parties take climate change seriously as well, they do want to act on climate change. They're very different in that respect from a party like the Republicans that still are very reluctant on this topic. But they are promising citizens that it is possible to combine economic uh, growth, uh, combine uh, fighting for jobs with dealing with climate change. But the way to do that is much more through investment and technology and, yes, government regulation, uh, but that you know, will have more affluent and more comfortable lives 20 or 40 years from now rather than having to atone for having sinned against nature. And, and that, I think, is, is an interesting indication of where not just German but European politics is likely to go uh, that stands in contrast with how even some of the most sort of sophisticated observers of Europe often perceive a continent in the United States. And Constanza? Well, my big takeaway is I think we are going to see a German government that has to grapple with a lot of domestic and external challenges in ways that Merkel's government, for all her excellence in crisis management, 
refused to really tackle the big transformational issues, carbon neutrality, the energy transformation from fossil fuels to renewables, really coming to grips with the assertiveness of authoritarian great powers. That has been left for this next government to undertake, the digital transformation. These are big, big challenges for three parties who have never worked together before in this way. And it is, I think, of significant importance for the, Euro the, the future of Europe, but also of the transatlantic alliance for this government to get it right. What happens in Berlin does not end at Germany's borders. It has tremendous impact on the stability and security of Europe as a whole and with that of the alliance. So watch the space. Thank you both so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's much later for Yasha, but I think we've all had a long day. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Hamza Shatu, and the podcast is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patyahal. Please consider subscribing to Lawfare Podcast, or if you use a podcast service that allows you to rate and review, consider giving us a review. As always, thanks so much for listening.